everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. My name is Ryan Fleury. I am joined today by the person behind a very popular code editor within the community. A lot of us use it for uh, our own personal programming. Uh, it's my editor of choice, for example. Um, this editor is Forcoder, and it was made by Alan Webster, who joins me today. So, uh, hello, Alan. Hi. Let's let's jump into it. So, okay. For me, code editors, I feel like they're kind of like a rite of passage for programming because mm-hmm. I tried to make one once. Everybody, everybody always tries to make a code editor because it sounds like a a cool thing to work on. You know, you can show people and be like, "I wrote this thing, and I'm programming in it to do other things." Mm-hmm. That seemed that always seemed like cool to me. Um, so I tried to make one once. Other people try to make them, uh, but more or less, what happens across the board is that people sort of it they seem really simple at the outset but then they kind of get into the they they kind of dig into the problem and find out it's really complicated and as you start introducing things that you want to do like maybe getting text into a buffer is the first kind of hurdle that you have to do but then mm-hmm. how do how do you start making it better for programming um for me once i kind of hit that wall I just was like, I'm just going to make a game instead, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but you're unique because it's that that's not true for you. Um, yeah. So let's, like, walk through... I mean, just to, just to give both myself and uh, the listeners some idea of the complexities of this space. Yeah. Let's, let's say I'm, like, I'm sitting down, I'm going to write Forcoder, or I'm going to write some text editor. Mm-hmm. What are, what's, like, the thing day one... The, the problem day one sure. that I have to solve. Or I guess not day one, like... Right, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, if I was literally going to answer day one, it's the same as for any big project that you're shipping to users, which is you're making, like, a platform layer of <laughs> right. graphics, and you're getting, like, all that normal, like, basic stuff set up. Yelling at MSDN. Yes, all of that. Right, that's day one. <laughs> yes. But hopefully by, like, day two or three, if you're, like, depending on how much time you decide to put into that, but really for a text right. editor... The there's like an early part that's easy, and then the long term part is kind of hard on that platform layer itself. The early part's pretty easy because all you're going to need to do is like basically do what every operating system makes easiest, which is getting keyboard input, saving and loading right. files. And graphics isn't necessarily the thing they make easiest, but usually like that's something you have to be good at to do most of the kind of application programming stuff that you would do for games or anything else, right? You don't have to do right. audio. You don't have to do, like, anything, like, more obscure, like a controller or, you know, any of that networking. You you, don't have, you have no, like, difficult part of the operating system for the most part outside of getting your graphics context set up. Right, um, yeah. But what you will, will be doing once you are on the editor proper, the main thing that I was basically doing at first is working on, um, uh, how do I put it, like, there's the text rendering part, right? So you need to like do the layout of the buffer and then figuring out how to locate things within that buffer in a way that you're comfortable with because the first thing you need is like a cursor you can move around, right? Like you, you're right. not making an editor if you can't talk about a spot in the text somewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's like a step, stop, a step before that that's just the ability to render it and almost nothing ever actually goes that far because usually any application with read-only text, you want to be able to copy it anyway. So you almost right. always yeah. go to the part where you need to be able to locate things within the text. So that's like day one stuff is yeah. the, the real editor day one stuff is like how do you talk about things within text and 
a little bit more towards the editor side, how do you modify it? So like, how do you do the copy, the mem copies that keep things ordered correctly? Like you want to like figure out what's the interface to like to delete something and you have to make sure that you shift the other text in the right way or that your data structure, whatever you chose is implemented correctly for storing that buffer. And then there's just the part of you know, like scrolling through that and knowing where you are in the text and what you need to render. I mean, all that right. kind of like just basic stuff um, won't take that long. I don't think for someone who like is comfortable with the language they're using and like ha is familiar with a couple basic algorithms like you know scanning right. through strings and stuff but yeah, yeah that's 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 day one stuff it doesn't really get complicated until like it like you said it's deceptively simple i would say that the first month or two will even seem pretty simple like you could you have lots of lots of progress every day because there's so many basic things that are kind of easy to do that you need to do before right. you can even hit the hard part yeah, right. And I guess the there seems to be even some com like more complexity than meets the eye just with the actual like moving stuff around in the text specifically. Um, mm -hmm. Like there's I like I realized you know it's it's a lot more complicated than just a character buffer underneath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But well, I guess yeah, past a, that. Yeah, there's there's another point that comes up that I think is when you decide that you want other people to start checking it out. And if you right. if it's your first editor, then you might make the same kind of direct, like take the same path towards that that I did, which is that you just okay. put out what you have, and then it turns out that nobody wants to use it since they can't customize it. And if you've made <laughs> right. your first editor or if you've studied the problem at all before you release anything, you'll realize that that's kind of unacceptable for a text editor. Like everyone needs to at least rebind their keys. Most people need to be able to do way more than that because they want they right. expect to be able to do things like oh, I want a single key that can do clean the white space at the end of the lines, auto indent, and then save. And you have those as three separate things. And if I can't at least string them together somehow, then I can't have to hit three keys every time. And that's not acceptable either, right? Um, right. So it turns out you need more than rebinding. You need fairly sophisticated, um, like, reuse of existing pieces. And the more you want to enable that reuse, the more just piecing together existing commands stops working. So for a long time, a lot of four coder customization was basically taking built-in commands because I originally was shipping with a bunch of built-in commands that had, right. were exposed through IDs and just calling them to achieve things. And after a little while of that, I decided that the first long-term goal was to implement everything that was a command that the user could call through a sort of well-designed API rather than through built-in commands. Because it turns out that even basic things like undo, redo, copy, paste, there's so many alt like flavors of them you could make if yeah. you had lower level access to how those systems work that it just makes a lot more sense to kind of treat the core of your editor as basically being the space where you provide a multi like a cross-platform like file handling layer input handling, rendering, and then an optimized buffer structure with maybe some like other optimizations for a few other common things you need, like searching through that buffer. Um, right. uh, maybe you want some kind of organization built into the core of how different like threads of execution can be, not necessarily in the sense that they're parallel, but literally within um, the space you're creating for users to customize, how can one system I, I guess i shouldn't call it threads of execution i should say like you start hitting problems like how do you make separate 
concepts that are orthogonal to each other work together, even though the people who are contributing the different pieces that are orthogonal won't actually be able to cooperate at all. And it turns out that that's the real problem in the long run is like, what are the core features that you provide? Because for any feature you don't provide in the core, if someone provides that in a customization, that's good, but that's kind of a leaf at that point. No one else's customization will really want to interact with that. Um, right. Unless they're okay with building like a dependency hell situation instead, where you have lots of yeah. sub packages of packages that depend on other sub packages and so on. Right. So right. how you decide to design your editor around that part where it's that you were leaning that heavily into customization, which is a choice you don't have to make. A lot of editors are suffi- like stop earlier in the customization road and say like, this is mostly what the editor is about and you can rebind keys and sort of script a few things. So that's like Vim, Sublime. A lot of editors make that choice. But there's yeah. also the editors that will like say like, we want to never have to actually limit what the editor could do for somebody. We just don't need to decide what, we need to figure out what the best way to expose the core features is at that point. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. And so there's kind of like this, that, I mean, that's sort of what makes 4Coder unique, I guess, is that um, I, I don't know of another editor that you can write C or C++ to, to customize right. it. Um, you know, it, it, I, I feel like there's like way, way on one end, there's like, I don't know, Notepad or something mm-hmm. if you want to go there. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of programming tools, there's like Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. It has like a million checkboxes that you can go through, but it's all sort of fixed yeah. in terms of, I, I think you can write plugins and stuff, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you sort of get into the, uh, I guess, Vim and Emacs where there, there are these languages that they know how to interpret inside of the editor. And then you get to something like four where it's just like, we're just going to, we're just going to provide these core things that are supposed to be mostly orthogonal as, as orthogonal as we can make them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we're going to provide these things and then. Anybody could customize it to, to I guess, arbitrary extents on top of that? Yeah. Or? So, okay. yeah, and I would say that's true, but there's a point at which, like, there's a, um, there's kind of, I guess, there's a lot of analogies I could draw, and that's why I'm hesitating to jump right into it, because I'm trying to think of, like, something that yeah. a lot of people relate to, but there's a number of ways I could look at it. There's, like, an operating systems analogy. There's an analogy to, like, um, 3D modeling programs. Um, Interesting. Okay. There's a lot of places where you end up like your core, the, an operating system, I think is probably the most universal example. Even the, the reason I hesitate to use that is because a lot, probably not a lot of people have like, it's not a great assumption to think that, that people are comfortable imagining that they know what it's like to write an operating system. And I'm not even super comfortable right. pretending to know what it's like, having only <laughs> right. kind of barely studied it and like experimented yeah. with the most basic kinds of operating system writing exercises. So it's a little bit of a stretch, but you can imagine that a big part of what happens when you're writing an operating system is that you're trying to not limit what the users will be able to do. And in the case of an operating system, a user is actually a program, right? Like a generic program, executable code is the user of an operating system. And the things it's trying to do is like the operating system wants to have multiple different programs. This is like at least modern operating system, multiple different programs cooperate. So that means it's, there's, there's only one like memory. There's only one set of like, there's only one memory space in the physical hardware, right? 
Um, right. Just the memory that exists is what it is. But through virtual memory, it has the ability to like broker that out to lots of different programs and make them all work without having to know that the other programs were ever going to exist. Like right now, for example, we have both a browser so that we can like be on a phone call and recording mm -hmm. systems up. You have more than one. And right. um, yes. <laughs> they are all things that were not – nobody who wrote one of these – made like a list of like okay if if it when the audacity writers didn't say check if google chrome is open and then cooperate with it in this way right. and chrome didn't yeah. have to do that for audacity either neither of them knew the other one was going to be running but they both didn't need to think about that because the operating system basically showed up to and said i'll be the arbiter of that right so yeah. in a certain level you need your core system to do that if you ever want cooperation between different pieces and this is not just about like sometimes the analogy of like oh two different people wrote two different pieces of software that need to cooperate is helpful but it's not necessarily always the case it can be you at two different times writing the same thing bouncing back and forth between them and just not wanting strict dependencies about how about how the two of them need to communicate with each other right like you you right. can take that analogy of multiple people and apply it to just yourself which is often the way this actually works out for me on four coder is I think about it as, well, two different people are going to, one person's going to talk about, like, how to edit a buffer using this particular, like, uh, you know, in like this, like, auto indent. And somewhere else, somebody needs to implement the idea of, um, uh, like, a history. And the fact that there's an auto indent and the fact shouldn't be present in the fact that there's a history because the auto indent is one of hundreds of things that the person who's writing editing commands is going to want to write. And the history shouldn't be a bottleneck to writing a new editing command, right? Um, right. Like it shouldn't be an – when I go to write a new thing that I can do as a command to edit the text, I shouldn't have a checklist of 10 things I have to do. I want to just kind of write one little piece of code that handles that. Um, right. And so the focus there is – very much on the amount of work it takes, but also the um, the chance of getting it right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just a matter of it's going to take more work if I have to consider how history works. It's also a matter of yeah, I'm probably going to have, like, if I have 10 different systems that I need to consult every time I edit something, then I have 10 chances to make a mistake for each system, for each edit command. Right. Yeah. And that's, so there's there's this concept of providing these pieces that and, and acting as an arbiter, mm -hmm. but there is, I feel like there's another analogy, which is so, sort of like the game engine analogy mm -hmm. uh, where you have the, the engine is theoretically like trying to provide these different orthogonal pieces that work well together, but maybe they don't have to work together at all, or people can use both of them mm -hmm. uh, in, in, I guess like combinations of, of functionality there. Right. But, it seems like the problem gets harder when you start wanting these systems to interact at all. Because if yeah. an operating system is just going to provide memory allocation, it can sort of just, it can wrap all of that up and then provide like some APIs to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you want to start having things like deeply interact with each other, it seems like the problem gets harder in the right. same way that so, those in games. Yeah. So, um, actually I should extend the operating system analogy. So the memory management, example part part of that example is kind of the easy case where it's about having right. some like in four coder the analogous thing would be like you have separate buffers and you can do anything you want to one buffer and it'll never touch another but like you can't accidentally modify buffer b when the right. handle you passed in was for buffer a right yeah same basic concept um 
you know, but there's another thing that happens where it's like, okay, there's one clipboard in Forcoder, right? And every right. command that talks to, about clipboards kind of wants to go to that same clipboard. Like I don't, people don't want to have like, well, I wrote a thing on my clipboard that like automatically scans the incoming text. And if it has any, like, like if the new, if the new lines aren't con consistent to what I want, it fixes them or something before it adds it to the clipboard. That's great. Right. But if that is a separate clipboard now, it's like, I've got this customized clipboard thing that is intercepting and modifying things that go to the clipboard. And then someone else's uh, customization is trying to take all the things that are on the clipboard and analyze them for like large strings that are duplicates and compress them to save memory for whatever reason or whatever crazy thing. <laughs> there's like, there's, there's gotta be a way for you to talk about what it means for something to be on the clipboard. That's generic. If you want both of those things to exist simultaneously, those are both kind of crazy examples, but it's, yeah. it sort of highlights like, okay, that is something I might not try to optimize the API for because it's a bit weird, but there are things like that right. that you have to optimize the API for. One example of that is, um, let me, well, let me do the operating system example first. So in the operating system, okay. dragging and dropping a file around, right? If I can drag it off of, if I can take a file and drag it off of Explorer, you know, off of my desktop or something and drop right. it into Forcoder and it opens or into any program and it opens, how is that possible? Because there's a, those are two separate programs that are executing. There's the file explorer on the one side and the whatever other program on the other side. The two of them never considered each other. Like they didn't talk to each other about how this communication was going to happen. Instead, the operating system is acting as an arbiter in the sense that it is providing a universal mechanism for how this always works. And right. so the explorer knows that in order for file drag and drop to work, it just set, declares I'm dra dropping a file to the operating system. And then a program that wants to receive a drop can say, hey, I'm accepting drops. And when you send me a drop, I'm going to check what file name you're sending me and, you know, respond to it somehow. And so it doesn't actually have to be now that the Explorer is the one sending it either because you can write a program where you drag stuff off of a, of a screen and onto another screen. And it never has to right. go through the operating system's programs at all. But it does have to go through the operating system's sort of brokered communication channel, the universal way of talking about a particular concept. Um, and so in Forcoder, an analogous thing is the idea that there are markers in a buffer. And the idea of a marker in Forcoder is that you can put a spot on, like you can say like line 100, the first word, you find that spot and you figure out what index it is and you put a marker there and you just leave yeah. it there. And then um, sometime later you can check, hey, where is that marker now? And the reason this is important is because edits that happened before that marker will move the text that you originally placed it on. So if you put it on a particular token that you cared about, like being able to get back to later, perhaps a compilation error, which is the main reason these exist originally, but there's a lot of uses for them. Um, okay. That marker will move with the text because if it doesn't, then you'll lose track of where you actually cared about. But there's no right. way to, there's no way for, if I didn't provide that from a core feature, as a core feature, there's no way that separate customizations could ever work and have that working. Uh, the reason for that is suppose that you write a command that edits the text in some way and your command calls to the, the like provided low-level API that moves text around. And then I say, you know what, I really need a system in my customization layer that keeps track of where edits go. From now on, all of my calls to the edit like API are actually going to go through this slightly higher-level thing that wraps calling the low-level thing and updating markers because I'm implementing them in my own little space here, uh, separate from yours. 
The yeah. problem is when okay. I mix them, now your edit command is still going to the low level one, not to my higher level one that provides this wrapping for updating the markers as well, right? And so once right. they mix, my markers will be wrong the moment I use your code. And so then the, the point of that like scenario is to get you thinking about, well, how would you ever make it so that all customizations, no matter how long into the future it is when they're written, whether or not I forget about the existing systems, no matter who it is who's writing it, they never communicate with each other, and then I'm trying to mix their code together. How do you actually make it so that those will all work together? And right. it, often it's also a matter of, like, is it worth it? Like, is that something that's worth it? Because there's kind of an infinite number of potential scenarios of these things that can come up. You just come up with a scenario that you haven't covered yet. It's always possible. Um, right. And yeah. then you say, how would you fix it? And sometimes it's arbitrarily difficult to fix. So it, it, that's kind of where it gets into, like, a trade-off space, like, is markers work it, worth it? Well, yeah, because a lot of the stuff you do in a text editor has to do with text, and you want to think about the text in ways other than just the text. You want to mark this part is important, and you don't want to, like, uh, you don't you don't want to lose track of where that thing is, and you need that to be kind of a fundamentally optimal. Like that's something you can easily optimize for the users yeah. as well as the text editing is how these markers get moved around and stuff. So it makes a lot of sense for that to go in the core in Forcoder. Um, but right. uh, you know that's like kind of has to be a case by case analysis. And what like a part a big part of doing a good job at building an editor once you get to that level is coming up with good ideas for what those core features that you're brokering will be. Uh, at least that's my opinion of what it really comes down to. Right. Yeah, because I guess the act of arb of being the arbiter of, of multiple things kind of inherently means there's less you can customize about it because mm -hmm. it's inside of the core and you can't customize the core right. um, because the whole point is for the core to just be kind of constant and then provide these things to customization layers. Um, so, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So there's... Um, so... There are, there is this challenge. It seems of finding the orthogonal things within the core to provide in order to optimize for particular cases of customizations. Uh, but how far do you take that? I guess because there's yeah. you don't want to prevent people from actually doing something because you took control of it. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, that is exactly where the flavor of your text editor comes from. Like, if you prefer Notepad plus plus to Forkover, right. then probably like Notepad plus plus by itself has the first big advantage it has is that it's got just a bunch of built-in stuff. How does it have yeah. built-in stuff? Well, it's got all of that because it's open source and because it's highly modularized, so that people can contribute different things. Lots of different people contributed right. all the long list of languages that Notepad plus plus can support. Um, yeah, or can like highlight correctly. Now, in order to make that happen, what you have to do is kind of first declare what it means for someone to define a language highlighter. So you have to say like, okay, in Notepad++, or if I was going to do this in Forcoder, which, you know, this is probably something I need to do sooner or later. This is kind of <laughs> like the marker thing. This is something that it has a lot of benefits and right. it, yeah. it, it it's like becoming the next thing that people are on like not on i guess the best way to put it is it, it's becoming the clear next thing that will have a lot of benefit um right which is defining clearly what it means to define a language right so there's in right now just a built-in assumption that you're doing something kind of like c style so if you have brace yeah. curly braces and parentheses 
that work out your scopes and your function calls, then your language will probably look okay in Forkyoder. And the yeah. keyword highlighting will be weird unless you manually put in the keyword list and then you're done, right? Like that's that's language support in Forkyoder right now. Right, um, yeah. But like that's not universal, obviously. And so a universal system can't be one that always works for everything, but rather it has to be one that says to the people who are doing the customization, hey, here's what it would mean for you to define a language, right? And the reason that has to happen is if I don't provide that from a core, from the core, or at least from the default layer of the, the custom layer, right? If, it, if there's not a default universal way to do that, then uh, you can easily go in and just make your own like Lua support or Python support or whatever, unusual right. language that doesn't fit the C style. Um, right. Yeah. But how will you integrate that with someone else's, right? Because you're going to have a way of detecting that you're on a Python file or a Lisp file or whatever, and then switch to treating it differently. And they're going to have their way of doing that. And now when it comes to merging them, it's not a simple matter of just putting them together. You have to actually like say, okay, here's a combined way of switching on them. Here are all the places where it was relevant that this was Lisp code. Like the fact that it's Lisp code showed up in these 15 places throughout the code. Now I have to, on all of those 15 places, switch between Lisp and Python and, and everything else that was already built in, C, C++, whatever else, right? right. And so this is kind of like the, the, the idea of like when something is a switch versus when it's a virtual table, but not literally, just in a figurative sense, which is okay. do you define all of the operations in one place and have like a strict control on... Who, which types there are, like which kinds of thing you can see there, or do you flip yeah. it and you say, "I'm not going to control what kind, how many kinds there are. I'm going to let that be a freely varying thing." And usually, in order to get there, you have to strictly define what the operations are going to be once and for all. Interesting. Right? And there's also, I guess, um, how do I? There's also the problem that certain features rely on certain assumptions about the grammar like i was mm -hmm. thinking the other day forkoder has a feature that i really like which is uh virtual white space yeah and i was thinking about not because i want to write in python because I, I don't really do python programming but if i wanted to there's no good way to actually have that work in in that case because yeah the virtual white space thing relies on these like grammatic symbols within the language like an open scope thing and a closed scope thing in order yeah. to indent um, well, but that has a completely different meaning in Python. Yeah, so totally. The, the, the idea of virtual white space is essentially that since white space doesn't matter, display something other than what the real amount of white space is to make it look good. Um, right. That default assumption that white space doesn't matter has to go out the window in Python, and so the whole concept doesn't work. Um, right. There's, a, yeah. there's like a different, like similarly helpful thing you could do in Python, which is to basically ditch the idea that you're counting the white space and when you parse it keep track of how many levels of indent there are and just surface commands that let you manipulate that without having to actually hit the backspace and space keys um okay interesting right and then you'd get the same kind of thing and the the advantage there could be like even in python there's kind of like tabs versus spaces right you have to do indentation but how you do that indentation i believe Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they don't like they don't like fail if the indentation is one or the other, either that or it's like 
Or it might be that yeah. it's the amount of spaces doesn't matter as long as they match or something. So you can do four spaces or two. There's there's something weird where it's like you can – the white space does matter, but it doesn't matter it, – it's like it doesn't matter up to a point. Like it matters up to equality with other white space, right, in some way. Interesting. And so yeah. you could similarly, as you do with virtual white space, say that like I really like to look at like maybe, maybe even uh, another way to put it would be suppose that – the white space has to be four spaces, either for styling reasons or because the Python interpreter actually requires four spaces for a new block. But you really don't like that because it takes up too much space and you just want it to show one space of indentation for each layer. Um, There's no reason you couldn't do a virtual white space type thing for Python. It would just be a very different system. Um, And yeah, that's a point where you have to go, all right, if I want to support Python and C in the same system and I want virtual white space for C and I want a future potential someday thing, where that Python virtual white space would be possible, then what is mm-hmm. the definition of what virtual white space is in the abstract that lets you do all that? And it's unfortunate when you have to make an abstraction, but this is the kind of place where you have to when you're trying to allow non, when you're trying to allow up to n different languages that are not going to be written by the same person to actually work together. Um, you by definition need a way to define what it is to define a language at that point, which is that extra layer of abstraction. Um, right. And that touches on a point that I know you and I have talked about a lot is uh, requiring the, like doing things that are generally useful for programming, for example, like with, with C or C++, white space doesn't really matter. Um, so you would like to provide the ability for the programmer to not have to care about white space. So this gets into the, the programmer experience kind of space. Yeah. Um, where you're not just trying to put text into a buffer, you're trying to manipulate these semantic concepts, and yeah. anything that is not directly doing that is kind of getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and white space is sort of like one of those things. It's just like, I know the rules that I would like to specify for this to be right, so let me just specify those rules, um, yeah. and then make it always correct basically so so this is kind of it's interesting because you're kind of hitting into like a rebuttal to an argument that we haven't actually presented yet at least that's the way like what you're talking about is to me an important rebuttal to something to an argument we haven't presented and so we're kind of um you know gonna have to rewind a little bit and and like play this play this timeline in the other direction to get back to this point but okay um, yeah. So what you're basically talking – let me start by just saying which thing is the rebuttal. Um, what you're saying – what you're talking about is the fact that we have a lot of really important information in our code. And that information is like – it's our job all day to create more of it, to modify the ones we have, to get rid of the parts that are not as good as like parts we can do better and stuff, right? Right, um, yeah. And so the text that we're manipulating there is – the way we're communicating that information into the computer and the way we're saving it, the way we're communicating it back to ourselves and to our colleagues when they need to understand what we're doing or what we did when we need to understand what we're doing. Um, So that's like, that's the, that's the method that it's the communication of the concepts is happening, but it's the concepts that it's our job to create and modify. Right. Yeah. Um, And the text editor remains simple as long as it doesn't become a code editor. Um, right. It, yeah. It never becomes complicated. Like Notepad, if you took if you took out text like highlighting, if you took out um, uh, indentation, virtual white space, these are all things that like in Forcoder require really complicated sort of almost heuristic level. Like you can kind of highlight pretty well as long as you don't try to highlight types and functions. 
and variables. Oh, as soon as you want to do that, it's going to be heuristics. As soon as you're doing um, uh, any auto indentation, it's usually okay, but you won't ever be able to make an auto indenter that can be configured to every person's taste. Um, right. Yeah. You know, like you, you, you just you you have to write the code that makes your indentation if your indentation is sufficiently weird, no matter what. Um, right. Yeah. If your auto indenter is sufficiently generic that you can make it do anything, then it's a programming language essentially. At that point. <laughs> right. um, uh, that's kind of like a. It's. I think it would have to be Turing complete at that point. Um, so yeah, it's. It's the point is it's a. It's a lot more complicated because the text editing editor is a lot more complicated because it's dealing with code. Um, and if you ask you like the, that fact is interesting because i think it rebuts an argument um okay about yeah. text being simple um so if you were to look at a debate that you and i have all the time and we're both on the same side of this debate but it's a debate we put forward all the time which is the idea yeah. of getting out of text as the storage and main like the core format that you center all of your tools around um right yeah. If you get away from text and go to something else, um, the first the first of two arguments, one of the first two arguments that comes to my head, other so there's actually three. There's three arguments that come to my mind about why you shouldn't do that, why you shouldn't get off text. One of them is that we just have all this momentum. There's Git and email and forums right. and text yeah. editors and compilers and debuggers. Everything relies on it being text. And yeah. That that's a really strong argument about why it's going to be hard and not necessarily, but in the abstract, it's not an argument that it's not a good idea, right? Right. Yeah. But there's a couple other arguments that I, I like try to figure out why might I be wrong, right? And mm -hmm. when I'm thinking that, there are two other arguments that come to mind that are like independent of that. These are the best two I can come up with for why to stick with text. And yeah. one of them is that text is a very simple data format, right? It's it is kind of objectively true at this it, without when you don't dig into it. Like it is really right. simple. It, the file size directly tells you everything you need to know about how to load and save it. Like there's only one thing you do. You look at how long it is and you write that. You don't serialize. You don't deserialize. Um, you don't. Uh, what what else would you have? To, you don't have to fix up pointers. You don't have to um, like index it unless you're going to do lots of searching. But you know. Even then, a very large text file is pretty easy to search linearly or with like with a good with a good search algorithm. Um, right. Yeah. There's you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons why text is nice in that way. It's it's easy to um, like make systems that display text versus other things. Um, it's not necessarily easier to display text than another generic format, except that you only have to use a font renderer and you don't need like some kind of complicated layout system anymore. It's fairly simple to like adjust to the right, write the next character, adjust to the right, write the next character, adjust to the next line, write the next character and so on, right? It's it's right. not trivial, but it's pretty easy as all, all yeah. things considered, right? There's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. about it that seems simple, but the, the, th the fact that a text editor for code becomes so complicated kind of betrays the fact that it's not actually simple once you want to edit code, right? Once you're editing code, the simplicity of the text is kind of doesn't matter anymore because you still have to do really complicated extraction of information. And right. arguably that extraction of information is made more complicated by the fact that the text is a bad fit for the information you're trying to extract, right? Right. Um, 
So, and I guess it's it's not just editing text either. Like a compiler has to do a, an entire process of of mm-hmm. extracting this information out of the text as well. Yeah. yeah so the compile like every single tool that uses the code, including the text editor, has to extract information from that text. And right. it turns out that yes, you've avoided making it hard to load a file and hard to display <laughs> it, but all the things you actually wanted to do with that file are harder. At, le- at least as hard as they were going to be anyway, because you didn't simple like the text is simpler than the simplest code format. I guess is what I would say. Like the fact right. that it's a linear one-dimensional thing does not match the fact of what code is actually like. Um, even right. the fact that you can kind of build hierarchies if you have a nice little grammar system, like that isn't even really what code is like. Code is not very hierarchical. It's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more like a graph, uh, even a, right. a even a cyclic directed gla- graph is a little yeah. bit of a simplification for what code is really like. There's a lot of things that go into what code is like. And th- there's a question about, like, if switching to a different format would complicate writing these tools because you can't just save and load the files. Now you're going to involve serialization and deserialization. Uh, but I would argue we kind of already do have to serialize and deserialize our files, um, our, t- our code files, because, like that's the whole re- like that just like i said you are going to have to rely on heuristics just to highlight function names correctly you're not going right. to get it 100% of the time you're going to rely on the heuristic and that is worse than having to deserialize you've already given up actually being correct at that point because it's so complicated um so yeah i i think going back to what you were originally saying yeah i th- it gets um there's a lot of complicated uh, stuff that happens when you start like trying to extract code information from text, and right. uh, that is why I don't like buy the first of my two arguments that text is better, <laughs> which is that text is simple, but it just it doesn't matter because you, the code is more complicated anyway. Right. Yeah. It's almost like what are we. What are we optimizing for? And not in the speed sense, but in the sense of what are the problems we want to make easy and what are the problems we want to make hard? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in with text, we're sort of saying, well, we want loading files to be really easy mm-hmm. and uh, easy to like, m- just like manipulate the, the storage of this stuff generically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of makes all of the other problems harder as well it sounds yeah. like um i mean i know like four coder has a lot of stuff uh like the fact the fact that it's manipulating text is kind of this is partially a c problem too i guess but when you have like macros for example that they manipulate text so that something that's not valid c grammar could be transformed into valid c grammar mm-hmm. um and as such, like, the editor can't even reason about it um, without right. first doing, like, a pre-processing step or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I, it's, um, in general, I think we're at a point where we want to start asking ourselves, what is it going to take to make computing better? Like, as a, as a very broad concept, like, what are the yes. worst things about computing? And I think that anyone in the handmade space is kind of already on board that something needs to be better. Uh, right in like broadly and it doesn't necessarily mean we all agree on what the worst thing is and so we're not necessarily all trying to make progress on the same problem 
But I think right. we all agree that something needs to change. And um, yeah. So I think when you're looking at like, okay, what could make it better? Well, there's a lot of different ways to use a computer, but I use a computer as a programmer primarily. Like that's the main thing I do with a computer. Like I think right. time sliced up all the time, ways I spend my time on a computer. Programming is the number one thing. So yeah. for me, making programming better is what would make computing better. And I also kind of think that there's a bunch of other reasons why if you start trying to think about the fact that programming is actually like how would I, I want to phrase it as I think programming has been made sort of artificially difficult for a long time. Um, Interesting. Okay. And I'm not saying that everyone will be a programmer, but I do think that a lot of the things that you can achieve as a programmer shouldn't actually be that hard to access for access for a lot of computer users. I think yeah. things like optimizing, um, like, you know, a data structure and how it's laying out memory, trying to do cache line optimizations, I think that's the job of a programmer. I also yeah. think things like working on algorithms, like uh, algorithms for, like, numerical computation, numeral algorithms for, like, you know, the fastest way to sort a thing, the, the machine learning algorithms, like, all that kind of stuff is, that's yeah. what a programmer's job is. Um, kind right. of a different kind of programmer. Possibly an overlapping skill that should be acquired by at least some, like, both of which maybe should be acquired by some subset of the people practicing either one. But yeah. there's a lot of things that I think general computer users could benefit from the ability to do, such as collating a list of things from a complicated data structure and then displaying it or um, filtering a list and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't really know how to describe it except like all the kinds of stuff you learn in a Python tutorial or a Lisp tutorial of just like right. Lisp, Lisp comprehension and stuff. I think... A lot of people get very frustrated using computers because it's clear that there's information there that they have very little access to. Um, huh. Okay. Like, it's just, it's frustrating to know that this thing could be doing what I want it to do, but it isn't quite built the way I want. And Interesting. Okay. Th there's, there's kind of, um, if you think, I guess, let me say it this way. If you look at, like, any other tool that we give to other people whether it's a graphics tool for 3D, 2D, audio, video editing, um, uh, web browsers, we present everything as a non-textual interface, right? It has natural language elements where it's appropriate. It has iconic right. elements where it's appropriate and it has literal displays of it, like data visualization or like the image itself that you're editing, right? Where it's appropriate. Yeah. And we've never done that for ourselves as programmers for almost any level of what we do. The debugger is the closest thing, and it's still highly textual. Um, right. And we also use the command line a whole lot, which is an extremely archaic way of specifying what you want to do with your computer at any given time. Yeah. <laughs> we have everyone else like learn how to use icons and stuff because it's obviously better, but we never, like, even, we haven't even really got to the point where you can just say, like, give me a list of the commands that are available to me right now in a nice filterable list that I can narrow in on the way Forkrutter does like listers, right? Um, right. And all of that just kind of seems like artificial difficulty to programming. And it's kind of a weird phenomenon. It's like, imagine how many users do you think would be able to do something like um, search their computer for a file that they know they did, like they worked on a project in school a year ago and now they can't find it. How many, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people for whom that ability would have been useful if the 
computer surface slightly programmatic like utilities in a really accessible way right um, yeah so i don't know maybe i'm way off but to me i think making a more accessible interface to programming would both mean making certain tr like basic but useful things like day-to-day -day computing tasks that everyone wants to be able to do a lot easier both for programmers and non-programmers and it would also mean hopefully a better editing experience for people writing really complicated programs yeah interesting and what was the uh what was the second argument that you ah, or i guess the third yes uh, i think we skipped over the, that right right the 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 third argument uh the so just to recap the first one was which one was the oh the first one was that In there's all this momentum yeah. yeah the second one is that text is a simple format the third one and this is maybe the more abstract one so it's harder to rebut but it's also harder to accept in the first okay. place which yeah. is that um, that text works because um, humans are good at natural language processing. Yes. Like natural language is a helpful tool in our like mental capacities to think about things. And relying on text-based programming, it basically is allowing us to tap into that way of thinking and there's a number of reasons why that doesn't make sense. First of all, like I said, every interface we have does present natural language where it's appropriate. Um, right. There's no reason the same wouldn't be true of programming, and maybe it's more natural language than other things present. But even with that, there's a big difference between presenting natural language as like the storage format and presenting it as the uh, like the way you interface. Right. So it could even be the case that centering our tools around text is a bad idea and we still have an almost completely text-based interface yeah i don't necessarily think that that's the way it would work out but that's just an opinion i don't however i think it's it's even harder to get to the idea of saying that centering the tool around text where you're storing it that way in memory on the on the on the hard drive when you transfer it around when you put past to other tools the fact that it's always text as the center point that yeah. is a really hard sell you and the natural language argument doesn't really address it, I guess, is my main rebuttal to that. Right. Yeah, that that that, that makes sense to me. Um, because if you wanted to traverse a graph, for example, mm -hmm. that encoded some programming language semantics and present it as text to the user, if it turns out that that's good for a particular thing, like, I think it makes sense for, like, low-level routines that need to just be explicitly a set of steps like it makes sense you wouldn't want to be looking at like a node graph when you're right. trying to reason about that um but you could easily just render it as text um it yeah. but you would be doing it through this sort of uh you'd just be traversing the semantic graph as opposed to um iterating through characters in a buffer that have very little to do with the actual semantic information yeah uh yeah so I guess what I would like to know from you is, do you have, um, like, what is the sort of picture you have? I guess this might be kind of a big ask if you haven't done this, but to me, it's right. a common routine, like maybe once a day or more, that I'm programming and I have to stop myself because my brain is going off thinking about an ideal situation that I wish I was in rather than the one I'm in for solving my current problem. Like, 
I need to like, I realize I need to take a break because if I don't, my brain's going to spend the next 20 minutes imagining a solution to a problem that I have right now that would be way better if only my tools worked a little differently and kind of, you know, I've lost an hour of my day once in a while from like the urge to just sort of rapid prototype the, not rapid prototype, like literally, but like to sort of usage case first, uh, a language feature or something and be like, pretend I could do this and type it in. So I guess my, my yeah. question I wanted to ask you is, do you have the ability to like close your eyes and picture what an ideal tool would look like um, for editing your code? Mm-hmm. And not if maybe not right now, but what is the one, if you were, have ever done that, what, do, what is the, like, the thing it looks like? Like just as a... Interesting. I, I think one of the things that first comes to mind is that I don't think the actual visual presentation of text impedes me normally. It might for your maybe beginner programmer or somebody who's not a programmer at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be really hard for them to sort of uh, like read things in the way that programmers have to nowadays. Um, But I don't think the, the presentation is necessarily the thing that, uh, gets in my way most, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more, I think the bigger problems are there's information. It's kind of like, it goes back to what you were saying before, where I know there's this information there and I know exactly where it is. I know how it's encoded. Uh, let's say, you know, a structure, for example, in my program that I would like to generate some code for. Um, I see the information, I know where it is, uh, but there's no way for me to manipulate that information in the way that I would actually like to. Yeah. Um, so I feel like um, that's a, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the ideal programming environment wouldn't necessarily be dramatically different in terms of what's presented to me on the screen, mm-hmm. but probably allows me to refer to another structure somewhere in a generic way. Um, that lets me use what that structure is somewhere else. And this gets into right. the metaprogramming space. Uh, I don't know what that would visually look like, yeah. uh, and I don't know what the controls would be, but it would have to be a tool that like did that one thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll just sort of like try to see if I can rephrase what you're saying to make sure we're, it's making sense. But what you're yeah. basically saying is, first of all, what definitely makes sense about what you're saying is that reading code right now is already pretty good. Like if you've written the code and you're just browsing it to see like, what does this thing do? That's usually the optimal case, which is, um, you know, a good sign that that the presentation isn't horrible, at least all the time. There is, I guess I would have one nit to pick there, which is once in a while, it's impossible for the code to be presented to me in exactly the way I want when it comes to like um, information that can be, sort of related in nonlinear ways. So for instance, yeah. uh, if you have that example I was talking about before of you have N different kinds of things, and I'm not going to use the word letter M because they sound too similar. Um, if you have <laughs> N different kinds of things and P different operations that you can do, okay, yeah, then you, there's no way to organize it so that on day one you can, or on day X, you can say, show me all of the operations for this particular kind. 
then the X right. plus one, you say, show me all of the implementations for this particular operation across all the kinds. And those are, depending on what situation you're in, both things you might want to be able to do. Um, so yeah. I feel like the one problem I have with our tools in general is the fact that text files, we, we could just start writing every unit of our code in a separate text file, right? Like type def gets a single fi line file, struct gets a single <laughs> file, each function gets its own file. And yeah. that's ridiculous because our text editors are focused on showing us a whole text file at once. And usually we have like two on our screen. But if, right. if they yeah. were focused on the idea that, no, it's broken down into these tiny little units that can be sort of mixed and matched together, and then we added like a tagging system on top of that. So you could say, show me all of the operations that, well, show me all the implementations of this operation that would then search the tags and present them in a list. That would be a much, a much appreciated improvement to the presentation that we don't have right now, um, from my perspective. The ideal situation would be that we don't have files at all, but we need to store them somewhere. But the second most ideal thing is that the editor knows about the units of things and doesn't need to locate things file-wise. Like, file coordinates shouldn't need to be a thing. Yeah. Um, Interesting. The other thing you were saying is that you're the, like, you have these situations where you've encoded some information in a particular place, and you want to use that information here but there's no, there's no way that you can generically bring it into whatever you're currently doing. Or if you do bring it in, it's going to like, you can bring it in at runtime, but you really would like to use it at compile time in some way. Or you want to just use it now to execute some code once and be done with it. Like there's different, if I'm understanding you earlier, you were saying something like the ability to generically refer to other things and use them in different places. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I would say that that's accurate um more yeah more or less the the ability to introspect um, yeah on on literally anything because yeah i feel like structures that i care about as the programmer come up uh in different ways in different mm -hmm. places all the time um and it's not necessarily like uniform the way that i express those things as a programmer yeah. like it could be a struct it could be a function yeah uh it could be lots of different language constructs, mm -hmm. uh, but there's no way to refer to those things later and reason right. about them so with I, other I, code. I'm not sure that I'm referring to what you're referring to, but I have an example of something that I just today took note in my head. I was like, this is an example of the kind of thing that you can't ever fix in visual in textual programming that you could in a sort of different non-textual visual thing. Okay, um, yeah. And maybe you can tell me that this is the wrong example that you had something else in mind, but here's something that it's kind of the sort of thing that will distract me from working right now because I'll think, ah, in a different situation, I could use this information better. And that's this. I was building the system that was basically um, an if-else-if chain, right? It is a lots of if-else-ifs. And the reason for this was that I was handling an event and I wanted to, like, have lots of different handler, like, different types of events could come through, lots of them. And I needed to say, like, if this is the event type, then handle it this way. If this is the event type, handle it this way. And I was just trying to like prototype out the thing, so I hadn't built like a, a data structure that maps event codes to like responses. Plus, I didn't really want to have like closures. I just kind of wanted it to be in the in the space where I was like I wanted it to be in scope still the the handlers. So yes. it became this if else if chain. Okay. And yeah. um, as I was going, it started occurring to me that what I'm really doing here is I'm encoding a list of pairs where the first element of each pair is a condition 
And the second element of that pair is the handler for that condition, right? Right. And yeah. I'd like to just say, like, hey, stop yourself. Copy and paste this information into a generic list of pairs of this type structure. And then tell this system to, like, hey, build an if-else-if chain from this list of pairs, right? Um, and yeah. the reason I'd like to be able to do that is, one, because that would give me a better interface than having to copy and paste an else if. I could just hit new, and it would give me another pair. So there's a couple of things there that'd be nice. Like, just on the surface level, I wouldn't have to manipulate the text to get there. But the more interesting reason that would be helpful is that later on, it's going to get more complicated. I'm going to maybe want to optimize how I do the dispatch with the lookup table. I'm going to maybe want different contexts where different things are possible. And I'm going to want the ability to, like present to the user a list of all the things they can do by like iterating this thing and saying, hey, if you did this right now, like if you hit this key combo, you'd get this result. If you hit this key combo, you'd get this result. You can click that button to get this result or hit this key combo to get the same result, right? And so on. Right. Yeah. And so I'd really like to be able to iterate that to show a context menu. I'd like to be able to optimize it. So like build some kind of either a switch out of it or a hash table at runtime or something. And I probably want to be able to reuse, there might be segments of that list that I want to break into sub lists that I can reuse in other contexts that are going to be a little different. And then realizing that that's the, basically I'm encoding this information of pairs and my problem later down the road is going to be one of how to make it reusable, how to make it iterable, how to make the lookups fast. And doing all of those things are real problems I have to work on. But I'm also going to have to work on top of all that, how do I actually convince the compiler in C to like do that since all of the options I can think of aren't actually possible in the language? Right. Like yeah. that information can't just sit around. It has to be in a list of if else ifs, or I'm gonna have to like I'm gonna have to like complicate the data structure that encodes a condition. Like right now I can just do if and then check a thing, but I'm gonna need like a generic data structure that represents all of those conditions that are that I might care about so that I can yeah. encode it as a piece of data rather than as a condition, etc. Right. And so some of those things are things that would require thought anyway, but some of them are simply limitations of the ways I can encode data. Yeah, that I mean, that's a perfect example. Um, it's more or less the, the sort of thing that I was thinking of um, in, in principle. Uh, mm -hmm. And really, yeah, that's that's the big problem for me, I guess, with, with programming tools is that you do have to, like, you know that the information you care about is there, you know where to go to modify it, um, but because you encoded them into, like, a very, it's very, you, you sort of bake them into a place in the code and there's no way to use them somewhere else or like to gener yeah sort of generically refer to them um and kind of reason about that structure of things in yeah. a in a way that allows you to use them in multiple places so that when you come back to this list for example of pairs you can just say insert a new pair and you have one place to say that instead of 10 yeah. for example yeah totally yeah so i think for the most part, um, we've been trying to solve this with the with our tools for a long time. Like C doesn't yeah. really try to solve that. Rather, C what C does have is it basically if you're in runtime with C, you're in a good situation. Like you can always put something into runtime encoding and then get just about anything done in a pretty reasonable way. But the problem is how often you want to run things on schedules other than at runtime, right? You want to be able to run code right now or you want to be able to run it every time you compile or something. Um, yeah. 
And the other problem you have there is that the like the language of C doesn't give you a way to say what is the what is the condition here, right? You can't say what was the condition on that if. There's just no such thing as talking about that. You would have to translate all of your conditions into a data type, and then you could talk, then you could talk about that in your code, right? In your executable code, um, right? And that is um, what editors have to do, for example, right? right? If they want to show the if condition, they have to actually go look for the open brace or like yeah. kind of to tokenize the code in some sort of approximate way, right? Um, and get at that information. Yeah, totally. So basically, there's two separate problems. There's the one, there's the fact that the C code itself is a like, complicated structure, and it's been, essentially, you don't have to deserialize text because text is already a serialized format, but you're pretending you don't need to deserialize it when you use right. a text editor, right? You have yeah. an actual format that you want, which is the thing that tells you what's inside the if above you right now. But you're right. not working in that format. You're working in the already serialized format all the time. And um, then what you do is you um, you have to make the text editor go and do the same work the compiler would do to extract that information and show it to you, right? And so that's the part that's like the text is the serialized thing that mat that is masking or making opaque the C structure you actually cared about, the structure of the C code you care about. But there's the second problem that I see, which is that there's no way to design a programming language that is fully text-based that can essentially make, gen like, I, I call this like making a model. I think we've, we've, you know that I use this term. I think we've talked about that before. But I use this yes. idea of making a model of something and then using that for something else. And that's kind of, to me, that whole idea of a pair of conditions and their handlers is a model, right, that I would just invent by saying, here's a new thing I want. I want a list of pairs, and I put all that information into that list, and I've right. built a model of what it means to dispatch a particular event. And um, I decide that from now on, like when I'm making an event dispatcher, that's what it means to, def to define. The, in the information that defines how to handle events is a list of pairs like that, right? And then I can write yeah. generic systems that talk about iterating those and displaying context menus, dispatching them at runtime, making documentation that you can print onto an HTML page. Like there's all right. kinds of things you can do from that model other than running it as code. And that's the other problem is that there's, I don't see any way, I mean, I haven't studied the problem extensively, but no programming language arguably besides Lisp has ever achieved the ability to make generic models that you then do stuff with. And Lisp only achieves it by essentially being a textual format for a generic abstract syntax tree. And it still has to make compromises because it's not statically typed. It's kind of like ambiguously, you can compile it, but it isn't necessary to compile. And so it does it makes a lot of trade-offs about how its variables are. Like they're not like, you know, they have to be right. looked up in tables. So there's all kinds of problems with Lisp as a programming language, but it's the closest thing I've ever seen to actually being able to just say, let me just plop some information in a particular structure into my code and then refer to it and do different kinds of things with that same model. Yeah, yeah, Lisp comes up a lot um, in these conversations because it specifically, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of built in that way where the code is the data, mm -hmm. um, but it can also, that data obviously can be like, used in multiple ways only one of which is actually running like kind of yeah. uh, running instructions for these semantic concepts within the language but mm -hmm. um yeah also being used elsewhere for sure 
Yeah. Um, it's a it's a fairly interesting um, language to play with. It's just it has the same problem that I guess everything has for me, which is that ultimately it feels um, it feels artificially difficult because of the fact that it's yeah. it's presenting fairly complicated stuff to you through a really narrow like view, the same way like a, a terminal does or programming languages it's just there's a lot right. that they expose and like in any useful editor for lisp you get things these days that are like you type in the name of a function and then it can tell you like oh here are the arguments to the like you start typing a fr function expression and it does the like argument listing for you so you can see which argument you're typing in at any given point and the name right. of the argument right but yeah it still has a lot of things that are confusing and hard to handle well because of the fact that First of all, it's old. It's not statically typed. And also, just it doesn't have, like, since it's not statically typed, it doesn't have any way to really, like, um, reason about... I guess it's not because it's statically typed. In my head, being statically typed is a prerequisite for doing, like, optimization-oriented thinking. Um, okay. Where you're thinking yeah. about, like, instructions and stuff. There's no way to see through the list to the code that's actually going to... Like, what's actually going to happen when you use it, right? You can't say... Right look at the disassembly side by side or something um, because it doesn't compile to, to assembly in the first place, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've never yeah. actually used Lisp. Yeah, I've, I've played with it just briefly. Um, like I said, it's kind of neat. It's mostly, I've been researching programming languages like Python, Lisp, uh, um, played with uh, Rust briefly, uh, Haskell okay. I spent a lot of time on. Oh, mostly okay. because I'm interested in what has anyone been able to achieve. And basically the conclusion I keep coming to is that you only have like like 100 characters when you're building a text-based language to work <laughs> right. with. Yeah. And so you can only have like a few of these good ideas at a time. Yeah, because that's – when you bring up Python, for example, Python is useful in the sense uh, – like people use it for a lot of math analysis and they mm -hmm. do like mathematics sort of uh, oriented programming, like a lot of machine learnings, like high level machine learning sort of programming happens in it. And um, what, and I guess the value there is that it optimizes, it optimizes that limited resource of, of characters to a particular set of models that is useful for some cases. Um, yeah. And it's useful for the mathematics, for example, but maybe it's not useful if you're trying to like optimize these low-level routines, for example, where mm -hmm. maybe like working directly in the assembly or like maybe in C is more suited for that because those optimize for that case better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. I think that is pretty much it. I mean, there's also probably a limit to like the compiling model and interpreting model that you can build at any given time, but right you can always make those things interoperate if you sort of federate them, which is what most people end up having to do who do scripting for really complex, like machine learning stuff often happens in like scripting type languages like MATLAB um, or Python, but is also hand optimized at the low level in C right? Uh, yeah. because it needs to be. And they need to, then there's like these libraries to try to make them cooperate um, if yeah. th that's for the people who don't just go full C, which is also a thing, but yeah, um, right. But yeah, you have to like you have to get that performance that you can't get in those in those scripting systems, 
And so you have to make the C work and then you can still connect them together and let's say like this evokes that. And I think this kind of gets back to what I was saying about like accessibility to other people. I think there's like, there's a lot of trouble with computing right now about like the performance of stuff, but there's actually a lot of trouble in my mind in computing with actually like the reliability and ease of access to stuff. Like, yeah. I think it's actually way worse that it's so frustrating to use a computer because yeah. it doesn't work than if it was slow. Like, I'd actually be happier with slower computers that always do what I expect than yeah. with what we have right. now. And so performance is important in a lot of places, but I think we also have to think about the quality of computing as a, like, why is there so, like, why is there so little visibility into so many important things? Why, um why can't I feel like I can just get certain things done quickly that don't matter to me? Like trivial things don't always feel trivial, I guess. Right. They still feel frivolously difficult. Um, yeah. And, and good. Uh, touching on reliability as well. Um, things, things crash and stuff. They, yeah, it's not just that they're slow, but they're, they just, they either don't function at all or they don't function re- reliably or predictably well um Mm -hmm. so i mean i'm in full agreement with you there that really the problem has a lot more to do um i don't know it's it gets into the uh, i guess when we're when we're thinking about things like programming or or thinking about data and how it's how it's transformed and every everything there's this uh and i i've spoken about this a little bit before but there's this assumption that it's about low-level stuff but it sounds like what you're saying and what i am agreeing with is is that it's like no that's not like the primary problem that's that's a very important problem especially Mm -hmm. if you're working in performance critical places but it's really just that things aren't working or yeah they they don't expose the right knobs for me or generally like the experience from a user's perspective other than performance is is a huge kind of piece of yeah of all of this so yeah i'd really like to live in a world this is just an example of something that's occurred to me before but i'd like to live in the world where i can rapid prototype a game in my editor by just saying like hit my pre-built game loop button right i have yeah. a thing that's just like pull up my list of things i've, I've pre-built and it's like i already built i didn't build a game engine but i built a thing that's like a little game loop and it has the like frame timer like sleep in there it automatically right. pulls in like just the structure of my program that does that. And I kind of have that now, but the way I have that is that I copy and paste an existing program and then delete out the stuff I don't need, right? Right, um, yeah. I would kind of like to be able to feel like I can make a generic skeleton that I'm reusing and maybe it's changing over time and it's not really a library. It's just, this is like my model for a, a game loop. And then uh, it's not, it's also important to me that that isn't just like copying and pasting code, but rather that it's like, presents an interface to me that's like matches what I'm thinking about when I say give me a game loop, right? So yeah. I think, for instance, I'd like to be able to say I'm not interested right now in where the assets come from or anything, but I just want to drop in some images and have, have, them, have them work, right? Like it doesn't need to be right. performant because I'm not on that part yet. There is yeah. a lot of importance that I think is a separate problem that people don't go back and figure out how to make things performant. Or you write something in your scripting language, it's not that fast, but you don't know that it could be so much faster because you haven't tried or you don't care to like yeah. look at what could be done better in a like optimized space. And right. so you know, I'm not advocating for always writing things high level, but I am advocating for 
like I shouldn't have to write things low level now just because I generally want to be able to do that later. Right. Like, um, yeah, I, it'd be kind of nice to be able to say like, give me almost a Python level, like, Oh, list, list, intro, like list, uh, comprehension stuff. And like basic data structures, like, I don't want to have to hand code my hash table right now. I just want you to like, give me a hash table right. that maps this type to that type. And like later, I might delete that. So I, spending the time to make that in C is kind of a pain. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't want to. On the other hand, if I were to just switch to Python, then I would never have the ability to then like, I'm not in a federated space where it's easy to like say, ah, this section of code is now going to be rewritten in like a more low level, basically portion of the space language system i'm gonna re like i'm gonna replace what i have with the optimal um or the optimized version of the same thing um you can do that in c but there's like a range there's like a, i guess there's like an interval to any language of how high you, how, how quickly you can move at the high level and then at the low level how far low it'll go and our programming right. languages right now don't expose enough of that range you either have to have the highest level you can reach in C isn't high enough, but the lowest level you can reach in high-level things is too high still, right? Um, yeah. So I think that has a lot to do with the fact that designing a text-based programming language that could handle all those that whole range is probably unreasonable to expect. Yeah, and I guess the presentation of code to different kinds of models, like to, for example, a really high-level sort of understanding like in python versus something more c like th changing the way that that's presented to people without actually changing the data underneath that mm -hmm. kind of implies non-textual storage of this stuff yeah um, and well, similarly there's like this level of detail thing too like sometimes what like you you asked me earlier what i think would be like valuable mm -hmm. in a tool yeah um and so much of the time, I'm like, I, I see I, I see very clearly the lines of code on the screen, but it'd be really nice if I could zoom out and look at what people kind of wanted mm -hmm. me to see or what they were thinking when they were programming this thing. Uh, and there's, I mean, I, you know, I could shrink the font size as much as I want, but it's mm -hmm. not going to present that information in a useful way. So yeah, that, that's like more of like a directly visual analogy, like to this sort of like scale thing mm -hmm. or like hot high level low level sort of sort of idea right um but it's kind of the same problem yeah so i think one thing that, that i think about once in a while I, I mentioned that i've been that i played with haskell is one of the things i was like trying out to see what what what's the deal with it and to really yeah. appreciate haskell you have to learn some like theoretical stuff too like it as a programming language is kind of obtuse and weird, but it makes a lot of like it's basically a, a directly it's directly modeling a complex theory of what it's like to compute math like a mathematical theory of what it's like to compute. And okay. so yeah. it's actually very like data oriented in a sense. It does not data orient like data orientation is actually a bad phrase as far as I'm concerned. There's like <laughs> data orientation has like two different levels. There's like at the high level it means what it means to be data oriented is to think about the kinds of information that you have and the kinds of information you want to have and what it takes to go from one to the other. Um, right, yeah. At the low level, data orientation is about how organizing your data impacts the performance of that conversion. Right, yeah. Um, C might be a good example of a language that is kind of well-tuned to doing that low level data-oriented stuff. 
then yeah. if that's the case, then Haskell is kind of well-tuned to the high-level version of that same thing and, and data orientation. It's it's very much about, like, this function takes this type to that type. This function takes this type to that type. It's all very, like, um, Interesting. clear to see, like, okay, if you have a type that is, um, like, a, like, basically, if you have a type that's, like, a pair of, um, it's got one member that's an int and one member it's a float, and you want to, like, define on it the, like, um, the operation foo, and you've already defined foo for int and float, then it makes it really easy to kind of in, like, a single line just say, just apply it to each member independently. Or yeah. to say, like, no, it means something completely different now. And either way, you can easily state that. You can easily state things like, okay, um, a map, which takes everything in a list to some other type of list, by yeah. applying the same function over and over again. That's a very data-oriented thing. Like, I have a list of foos that I want to take to a list of bars of the same exact length by applying the same transformation to each of them. The right. difference is that in C, that data orientation is all about, like, looking at the cache line and looking at the fastest way to make that happen, and you're thinking about the fact that in batch you can do this optimally, right? In Haskell, right. you're basically saying, here's the function that applies it one at a time, and then, a map, and then you call map on that to apply it to the list, right? So you've thrown out the optimization that you can apply when you're doing something in batch by just saying do it, do it one at a time anyway. And I don't care what the list data structure is like, but the information there is correct. Like it correctly models the way you think about data-oriented stuff informationally, yeah. even though not it isn't doing that sort of at the opt like the level of what the computer can actually achieve for you. So it, it's a very high level way of basically reasoning about your information is my short summary. And once in a while I think hmm. about it as like it'd be kinda neat to be able to say, define my function define I have a function I want to write in C, but right. it's in Haskell gonna be like five lines. And the like I've done out the math of what the transform I'm doing is here, like the types I need, the the functions I need. And writing that out in Haskell as a purely data transform like definition of what what information should turn into which pieces of information writing that out first and then writing out the c code second and having them live side by side in the same system so that you can say hey this is supposed this c code is supposed to implement that haskell code please test it automatically for me and hmm. then when you are asking what does the c code do it's like, well, refer to the Haskell code because it states clearly what this really complicated, like, hand-coded, like, intrinsics with, you know, SSE is trying to do. Right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing is, like, levels of detail in a different way where it's, like, you want the low-level levels of detail and the high levels of level of detail for different reasons at the same time. And sometimes I think it would be useful to just write both and have them both sit there. I actually do this in my code once in a while where I'm, like, the slow version of a thing and the fast version of a thing just because yeah. I need to be able to, like, debug the fast version against a reliable, a reliably correct implementation. Um, right. So I feel like that is something that the tool could just support um, in an ideal world. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And... Do you so do you see that being implemented inside of one of these non-textual languages, like some way for for me to specify something in one model and then map it to something else, but have it all sort of live within the same kind of language environment? Because you were talking about like these two different languages, um, but would would that exist within one ecosystem, sort of? Uh, yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. So. 
it's kind of hard to say because there does kind of become a Russian nesting doll problem at some point. Right. I think what sort of happens, like, I guess, first of all, just as a thought experiment, imagine the situation where in your environment you can say, like, as like say the name of a function and you're like typing it into some interface and you this interface now knows that you're referring to that function like you've given it the handle that lets it know that this is the thing I'm talking about yeah and then you can give it another handle that's like the name of a compiler and it, that compiler is in your inter, in your in your environment and you can say I want to run that compiler on that code right Hmm. And okay. that code is just some data, right? It, it, ultimately, it's just some data that you have access to. As we've been talking about, you can generically refer to it. And that right. compiler is some code that you can execute. Um, yeah. The code you're passing into it is being treated as data as far as that compiler is concerned. And then it's going to generate some executable stuff. Well, I don't really see any reason why, one, those compilers couldn't be implemented in a like base level like if there's a base language right that is available right. i don't see why you couldn't say like that base language is kind of like c and then the haskell compiler is implemented in it thus providing a function that you can call that compiles haskell style data um hmm. and then you can say okay in my system i have a function that compiles haskell data it's a really big complicated function that i you know years have been spent building that thing but now right. I can take some Haskell style data, put it in there, and it will output some low level stuff. And then I can take some C style data, compile it through a different compiler function, and it'll output some executable. And then, you know, run those and see if they like run those on a series of examples and see if they get the same outputs for the same inputs, right? That kind yeah. of workflow, I don't see it being impossible. Now, there does get to be a point where you've got to write a lot of like you've got to write a lot of different compilers and you start maybe wanting to like use a better compiler that already exists to write yet another one. And you maybe don't want to go that far. And then it becomes a question of like, what should the base level, how high should the base level be? And so there's okay. still, there's still like engineering trade-offs to be made. I just think that there's a much more interesting range that you can reach when right. you stop trying to make it fit into text. Interesting. And and clearly there exists some mapping between these things because, mm -hmm. I mean, Haskell code has to run eventually on yeah. a machine. Uh, so there is like there to me, it seems obvious that there is some mapping, whether we can work out the details of how to do that well in a language is kind of another or, or like a yeah. language editor. These these kinds of things like that's kind of a separate problem. Mm -hmm. Like it's it seems like there is a mapping. It's just we don't know if that mapping is within the space that. Uh, can be well presented to a programmer. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's also like, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things to figure out about like, is there such a thing as a generic data editor where a generic data editor basically means you can make like lists of pairs and it just kind of presents that to you in a way that makes sense for a list of pairs of any type. Right. And then the, because it's of any type, it's like, well, this is a generic data editor. So it has kind of a maybe a static type system so it becomes like okay the the like we're let's go back to that uh, example of conditions and handlers right then yeah. maybe it's like well what is a condition well a condition is just an expression in whichever language we're talking about so maybe it's a c style expression mm -hmm. and it also has this whole thing now if it's going to be a c style expression it needs to be evaluated at some point in the scope of a function right like i need to know what my local variables are and stuff 
Yeah. Uh, so you have to a little bit more complicated because of that. But if you can say, okay, this is a C expression at this point in a scope and this scope, um, then that's a data type that we're already saying we want to build an editor for, right? It's a C type expression. Yeah. We want to build an editor that can handle that without it being encoded as text so that it can be a generic thing. We want a thing that can do C style, like X, like X statement block. Um, so that would be the second element in that pair in that list. Is it that weird to think that you could make a, a generic list of pairs edit like template that could then drop in other types that you also have the ability to edit? Um, because if not, if you think that a generic type editor, generic data editor with static typing could be built, then I think a lot of these things don't seem that weird because really what you're talking about is making the data editor and then just having the ability for some of that data to actually be code, right? Yeah. Um, Interesting. Okay. I don't know how much of that is truly possible and how much of it is like there's a limit to how far you want to go with it, but some of the basics seem reasonable. Like it's, it's, hmm. uh, it's clear, for instance, that if you wanted to, you could just make those be strings and so it's still just literally c code and you're just making a slightly better data type system on top of that that can do like lists and pairs and matrices and stuff and sometimes i wonder why i don't just go that route with like experiments in that kind of direction with four coder like i could say like hey here's a list of strings mm -hmm. um and that list of strings you just are able to do whatever you want with programmatically in your customization but the program the editor presents like a nice interface to editing a list of strings all of a sudden um and referring to it generically in in like not in your code but in your editor um right because there even that would be kind of neat the ability to sort of have these typed data things that you're editing yeah um, and using in other places it's just it becomes a lot more useful when you can refer to a handle of that to data in your code yeah cool um i think uh i think we're running out of time here but okay. uh what as a closing question is are there are there things that you are uh moving towards i guess with four coder like experiments with four coder um and general progression in in that kind of space that is a pro a kind of approaching the solution to this problem? Um, so I think that the literal answer to that is no, I'm not doing anything with Forcoder to address this problem directly. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am kind of, like I've been for a while researching and experimenting with what I want to do. And I'm just not ready to say for sure that I really know that I, my, like, that my ideas are going to be the thing that solves it. I think, like I, I said before, I think everyone in the handmade area is kind of in agreement that something is off. And some yeah. people are looking at like the coding tools. Um, other people are just looking at like the like widespread exception of, or like the widespread adoption of caring about these things or of like better ideas of what is important and what isn't important. Um, like there's a lot of different philosophies or theories about what uh what what can we do that will be make things better and this like, i've sort of discussed a lot with you here what i think we should be trying to do or at least what i think is worth my time to try to do right i just don't necessarily know that any of them will solve the problem so i guess i would say that i'm running experiments um, okay fair enough um so i guess to all the listeners 
at home or wherever they are, uh, you too can experiment with this problem if you pick up a copy of Forcoder um, and you can try customizing the editing experience and see if you can make it better. Um, mm-hmm, for sure. That's certainly what... I mean, I've I've kind of rat holed on that, but it's a lot of fun. But it's also it's also really helpful. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, well, it's it's been a pleasure, Alan. Thanks for coming on Thank the show. You. Yeah, um, this is awesome. Yeah, like this was this was a really good conversation. I think it uh, solidified a lot of ideas for me personally, and hopefully uh, gave some insight to listeners as well. So yeah, thank you so much, uh, and uh, good luck with everything. Um, Thanks. And yeah. And uh, do, do you have any, any last messages to sort of broadcast to people? Uh, no, I, I would. The only message I have is for you, which is this podcast seems pretty cool and I hope it goes well. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, it's 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 like 10 percent me and 90 percent uh, like you and and the other people that I bring on, like just saying interesting things. So, I'm, I mean, I'm really excited to uh, get the chance to, to talk to people about these things. Yeah, so it's been fun. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Take it easy, Alan. I'll see you. Uh, see you when I see you. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Later. All right. Cool. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time. <laughs>